Welcome to Hope Community Church of Hickory. We are so glad you decided to join us online. Make sure and hit the follow and notification buttons to keep up to date with all of our sermons. Here is our latest message. The book of Hebrews chapter 4. If you're just joining us, we're, we started off this year and we're just walking through the book of Hebrews together and the truths that it has for us. And um, if you um, missed the first couple of weeks, you know, the, the writer of Hebrews, he is writing to a group of believers who have Jewish heritage, who come out of a Jewish background, since converted to Christianity after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is a group of people that are experiencing severe persecution at this time. If memory serves correctly, right, right now they're under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, who's known as one of the most ruthless Roman emperors when it came to persecuting the Christians. And so you have a lot of um, these new believers that are feeling a lot of pressure. And they're feeling a lot of pressure from their, um, from their immediate families, those who are still practicing the Jewish religion now, um, who have not uh, believed in Jesus. They have pressure from their families to go back to their old traditional custom ways rather than just living this new life by faith. They want to go back, make them to go back to a workspace salvation. But the writer says that, no, like Jesus is so much better than that. Jesus was better than anything Moses was able to bring. But these are also some believers that are literally fearing for their lives. They're fearing that their families might be torn apart. They're fearing that they or their spouses or their children might be killed for their faith. But in the spite of all of that persecution and the trouble, the writer says that they have rest that is available to them. And today I want to pick up in Hebrews chapter 4. We're mainly going to focus on verse 12 and some of verse 13, but I don't think we can really grasp what verses 12 and 13 are really trying to say to us if we don't look at them in the entire scope of the context of which they are being used. So we're going to read together Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 11 and go through verse 16. The writer says, Let us therefore be diligent, to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit and of joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the, hearts and, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Would you pray with me one more time? We'll get into this a little bit further. Dear Lord God, we come to you in the name of Jesus by the power of your spirit. And we ask you to bless this moment. We pray that you bless this word to us. I pray that we would understand what you're truly trying to communicate to us through your written word today. I pray that you would take us to a deeper level of faith. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me in a new way. I pray you would get a fresh anointing upon me because I know without your power, without your truth, without your love, I cannot say anything of any significance or importance. So I pray that you would be glorified here today, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who we get to be in you. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. And all God's people said, 
Amen. How many homeowners do we have in the room? And good homeowners, you know, some of, some of us uh, are still kind of new at this, but any young man that recently becomes a homeowner instantly views himself as a handyman. Whether he has any experience ever being a handyman before in his life, whether he's been handy with anything before, it doesn't matter. I'm a homeowner now. I've got to be a handyman. I remember when I first bought my, I bought my first house out in Shelby back in 2016. I was 25 years old. I felt so grown up. Now, I was going back and forth to Lowe's and Home Depot all the time. I was borrowing trucks any chance I could get. And I, I would go and talk with other guys. You know, I'd talk to them, walk around their house, talk to them about their different housing projects. You know, like I was a seasoned veteran. Like I knew what I was talking about. You know how it goes. But now that I'm a little bit older and a little bit wiser now in my mid-30s, um, I have a process of what I go, how the order I go through whenever I need to tackle a new house project, you know, whenever I need to be handy. First, I try to figure out for myself. If that doesn't work, I consult with YouTube. And if I still can't figure it out, that's when I call Gene Henry. <laughs> that's when I call Gene Henry. That's when I need the expert opinion. I remember whenever I was, uh, when we first moved into our house here in Hickory, I was tackling all the new house projects. You know, I was like, I was replacing light fixtures. I was spackling holes in the walls that may or may not have been caused by myself. But uh, I remember at one point I was replacing the ceiling fan in the master bedroom. And I had replaced like all the light fixtures in the house. But then I get to this and I came across something I had never seen before. It was the double switch. There was one for the light and there was one for the ceiling fan. And I look and there are more wires than I've ever seen before in a ceiling fan or light fixture. They're all different colors. Nothing made sense to me at all. I'm trying to figure it out. I can't figure it out. So I go to YouTube and I'm watching all these other videos. But the guys in these videos, I can't figure out what instructions I'm supposed to follow because these guys have different color cords than I have. Some have different amount of cords. I can't figure out who's telling me the truth. I can't figure out which brand each one has. So I result to my third step. And I call Gene Henry. And I don't just call Gene. I get him on FaceTime. And I'm telling him, Gene, you know, here's the ceiling fan. And I'm walking him through. I'm, I'm showing him all the wires. I'm showing him all the due diligence that I went through, letting Gene know that this is the most complicated ceiling fan ever known to mankind. And only an expert can figure it out. And you know what Gene asked me? He says, well, did you look at the instructions? <laughs> I said, well, that's a valid question, Gene. <laughs> Because, no, I normally don't want to look at the instructions. It's just so many words, you know, on, on pages, you know. The illustrations never seem to line up right. I don't, I don't want to look at the instructions. But Gene had a valid point because the reality was no one could tell me how to do it better than the actual manufacturer and the one who designed the product, right? But I think that's exactly how we as Christians kind of take this walk of faith, though. I think there are many Christians that view and treat the Bible the same way that I view and treat those instruction manuals. You know, they're just words on words on words, you know. I'd rather someone else just show me. I'd rather someone else just tell me rather than actually work through it for myself. And my question is, how many times do we actually miss out on what exactly God is trying to teach me specifically through his word because I'm just so caught up on what someone else says about it that was actually meant for a different place or a different people group? You know, for example, sometimes I'd rather listen to a sermon from somebody that's 12 states away than just meditate on the word itself. 
You know, I'd rather read a devotional that gives me one little verse and then three paragraphs of someone else's interpretation of that verse rather than just allowing that verse to soak into my heart. I'd rather spend more time reading commentaries and scholarly articles rather than just praying through the scriptures themselves. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? There's nothing wrong with commentaries and online sermons and devotionals. Those are all great things. God blesses those things, and he uses those things to bless our lives in many ways, and he will continue to do so. We don't throw those things away. However, the danger can be that we can fall more in love with the interpretation of God's word rather than God's word itself. That's why if you only rely on your biblical intake for Sunday mornings here at Hope Hickory to hear me talk about the Bible, it's never going to be enough, and you'll be a very spiritually malnourished Christian. You need to soak in the Word for yourself. God has given us His Word as a tool for Him to speak to us into our exact situations at the precise moment because no one can instruct us better than the manufacturer, the designer, the creator himself. Amen? In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer, he tells us right exactly where we can find the instruction manual for entering into the rest that we've been talking about. We talked about last week how we as believers, we have rest for today because we have rest for eternity. We can have confidence and we can have security in who God is for us right now and believe the promises of God. And in verse 11, it says to strive, or in our translation today, it said be diligent to enter that rest so we don't fall into the same disobedience that the Israelites kept falling into back in Moses' day. And that is actually possible for our lives. Did you know it's actually possible for us not to live in unbelief? We don't have to have our hearts hardened. It is possible to take hold of the rest that God offers us. How? Because verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm telling you, it is impossible to have a consistent relationship with the word of God and not have God's rest in your life. Why? Because the scriptures, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, are the means by which we know the promises of God and can rest in the promises of God. Now, there's a reason why John, when he started off his gospel, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The Word, it is the Greek word lagos, and the same word is used when referencing Scripture as well. And me and my dad, we were talking about this passage this past week on the phone. And my dad pointed out, he said that God does not want us to divorce the Scriptures from his person. You see, if we use the Scriptures, if we use the Bible for anything else other than a means to connect with God personally, we will miss out on the beauty of God's Word and all that it offers us. That's why Jesus, whenever he was challenged by some of the Pharisees on some doctrinal issues in Matthew 22, he told these Pharisees who have read and memorized more scripture than you and I put together ever will in our lives. Jesus told them that they were in error and they did not know the scriptures or the power of God. And in verse 31, he tells them, you have not read what was spoken to you by God. And then he goes on to quote a very, very familiar verse. 
Now, of course, these Pharisees had read that verse. Of course, they had laid their eyes on that verse. But that word read that Jesus uses literally means to know accurately or to acknowledge. You see, it is possible to read scripture, but not have a relationship with the scripture. You can read the words on the page, but not allow it to accurately work on our hearts or acknowledge the true power of them. And that happens whenever we do not use scripture primarily as a means for connecting and communicating with God. You see, when we use the scripture just as ammunition to demonize someone else or to win an argument or to push an agenda, we will miss out on God's heart. When we use scripture as a means of pride to seem more intellectual than other Christians, we will miss out on his person. When we use scripture merely as a means to check off a box so we can feel better about ourselves, we will miss out on the true power of what he's trying to teach us. We cannot afford to take for granted this wonderful tool that God has given us and preserved for us throughout thousands of years, despite of all these various attempts of the Bible, people trying to destroy the Bible altogether. God still saved it. He preserved it so we could study it together today. Do you know, back in 303 AD, it was under the rule of Roman Emperor Diocletian. He made it his mission to completely destroy Christianity completely. He ordered that every single church would be burned and that every Christian that would not be willing to deny their faith to be killed. Now, that wasn't new. You know, the, these believers that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they're experiencing that 200 years before Diocletian ever even assumed power. However, under Diocletian's rule, this was the very first time that the scripture became a primary object of attack. And Diocletian ordered that all copies of scripture were to be burned. And if anyone was found in possession of a Bible, they were to be brutally tortured publicly before they were killed to deter anyone else from hiding their copies of the word. And this decree was in full force for two years. And Diocletian was so confident that he had succeeded in his endeavor that he famously boasted, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. However, the very next year, Constantine, he assumed power. He was the very first Roman emperor to ever become a Christian. And at one point, he, put, he issued a decree, and he offered a substantial reward for anyone that could bring him an intact copy of Scripture. But Diocletian had destroyed them all, right? However, within 24 hours of Constantine issuing that decree, there were 50 different copies from 50 different sources. Well, I don't know if it was 50 different sources, but different sources, all containing the same exact text. And the Bible began to start circulating again. And there have been other attempts. Now, even the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, they burned thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of Scripture in the attempt to get it out of the people's hands so the church and the church leaders would have more power. There was a French philosopher, Voltaire, in the uh, 1700s. He led the charge and the Bible being completely rejected by France as a nation. And if they were to find a copy of Scripture, they would tie it to the tail of a donkey and have it drugged through the streets to be ceremoniously burned. And he was so confident in his attempts to destroy and discredit Scripture that he boldly predicted within 100 years of his death, the Bible would be completely obsolete. However, the irony is that within that 100 years after his death, 
His own personal typewriter was actually used in the production of more copies of Scripture, and the very place he lived ended up being the headquarters for the Geneva Bible Society that produced thousands of copies of Scripture. Now, I could go on and on with all these different attempts all throughout history, you know, to discredit the validity of Scripture. And I could give you all of the statistics of how it's the most historically accurate and the most best-selling book and piece of literature of all time. I could give you all of those statistics, and we can go on about that. But the overwhelming truth of it, the matter is, is as Peter says, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. However, even with that being said, these scriptures will not change your life and lead you to connect you with the God who wrote them if you do not approach them with faith. Again, not just to read the scriptures, but to have a consistent relationship with the scriptures. Now, that might be a strange way to put it. You might be thinking, Kenny, how can we have a relationship with a book? But we can, because this is so much more than just a book. <laughs> there is nothing that has ever been written and nothing that ever will be written that's anything like this book. And the writer of Hebrews tells us just how different this book is than any piece of literature that's ever been produced in all of human history. And first, he says, the word of God is living. This is how you can have a consistent relationship with the Word of God because it is a living Word. Once again, like my dad reminded me, we cannot separate God's person from the Scriptures. Furthermore, the word for living that is used here is the same exact word that Jesus used when he was speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Whenever he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Same exact word. The same living water that Jesus offered that woman at the well through his presence and forgiveness and relationship, he offers us today through the scriptures as well. Because the truth of the matter is, this book is not just a set of historical documents or outdated stories. No, it is a very look into the heart and character of God. And the more that you get to know the heart and character of God accurately, the more it will give you life and life abundantly. I also love that the Bible's used in context of life here because it takes me back all the way to creation. We read in Genesis, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then the man became a living being. Now, of course, the breath of life was compromised in mankind whenever sin entered into the world. But God had a plan to restore the breath of life within us. And he foreshadowed how he would do this in Ezekiel 37, whenever he took the prophet to the valley of dry bones. And he told him to prophesy over all of these skeletons. And as Ezekiel prophesied, bones began, began to attach together, skin and ligaments began to form on these bodies. But he said there was no breath in them. So God told him to prophesy specifically to the breath. And in verse 10 of Ezekiel 37, it says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet in a seedly great army. And God explains to Ezekiel, this is an illustration of what God's people were like at that moment. Just dry bones, no real life within them. But he tells them there will come a day 
where that breath will be restored. And he says on that day, verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And then we see that prophecy come into fruition in John chapter 20. After the resurrection, Jesus, he appears to the disciples. And he says, just as God has sent me, so I am sending you. And in John 20, 22, it says, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So whatever God breathes into, whatever he breathes his spirit into, truly comes alive. Now, how does that apply to what we're talking about today? Well, Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So because God breathed life into these scriptures, this book is life-giving and teaching us what we need to know when we need to know it. This book is life-giving in rebuking and correcting the areas of our lives that need to be rebuked and corrected. This book is life-giving in being the instruction manual we need to live a life that is right with God. This word is alive. And next the writer says this word is powerful. This word powerful is the Greek word energes, where we get the word energy. That sounded Italian the way I said that right then. I don't know if that was the right pronunciation. I'm second-guessing myself. I did study it, I promise. <laughs> right? But some translations say this is effective or active, all to emphasize that this living word is here to move powerfully in our lives. Now, the common thought is whenever we read phrases like the word of God in the New Testament, is we think that the writer must be referring specifically just to Old Testament scriptures. However, that's not the case. Because like we already referenced that John referred to Jesus as the word of God. At the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the writer clarifies, he says, in the beginning, before the ages before, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So in reality, whenever we read the phrase word of God, it actually consists of five different components. Right? God's divine decrees, God speaking through the prophets, Jesus Christ himself, God speaking personally to his people, and number five is the written word of God. However, of those five, the only one that we can actually corporately study together is God's written word. Also, we would not have any understanding right now in our day and age of the other four if it were not for the written word being here for us. Also, the writer is not just referring to Old Testament scripture specifically because even the New Testament writers were still seen as giving the word of God even before the New Testament collection of scriptures were canonized. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter talks about how some of the teachings of Paul are hard to understand. He says that people are trying to twist his teaching. And then he says, quote, as they do with the rest of scripture. So even Peter recognized Paul's letters to the churches as scripture. Furthermore, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this word is at work in us, and it's here to do an effective and active, a powerful work in our lives. And we see throughout scripture just how much power it has. We see first and foremost, and most importantly, that the word of God has the power to save. That's why Romans 10 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word 
of God. Romans 1, 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And in 1 Peter 1, 23 says, you have been born again. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. So this word has the power to save our souls, and it also has the power to transform our lives from the inside out right now. And we need this power every single day because there are so many areas of our lives where we just feel completely powerless all the time. Every single day, we feel powerless to change. We feel powerless to do good. We feel powerless to effectively help others. We feel powerless to make it through the pain and the frustrations that this life throws at us. But you know, the truth of the matter is we are powerless. And that's why we need a power source. And God gives us his presence. He gives us his word as a source of power for us today. That's why the proverb says every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Also, Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. You know, even when it doesn't make sense to the rest of the world, even when it doesn't make sense to the people immediately around you, Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If there's ever been a time where we need the power of the word of God in our lives, it's today. We need the word of God to transform us. We need the word of God to guide us. That's why David said in the psalm, your word is a light unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need the word of God to light the paths that we need to take in this chaotic and confusing world. We need the word of God to shine into our lives for comfort, for encouragement, and also for conviction. Because you see, the Bible has a way of putting a brutal mirror up to us, showing us the aspects of our lives that we know we need to change. And it can be a seemingly brutal process. That's why the writer says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. So here we see the word of God is living, the word of God is powerful, but also we see the word of God is piercing. Now, me and Brother Kevin, we were talking after church uh, the other week about the conviction of the Holy Spirit brings. About how if we're truly reading, if we're truly preaching Scripture, you know, we're going to get stung every once in a while. You know, and if you're going through your Bible reading or if you're, you're in church and you never feel a little step on the toes, you never feel a little punch to the gut, you never feel a little pierce, you never get a little, ah, then we're probably not really preaching the Bible. We're probably not really reading the Bible because the Scripture is going to get real with us and we're going to feel it. And I love the symbolism of the sword here because that's not the only time we see that in Scripture. In Ephesians 6, whenever Paul is listing the armor of God, he refers to the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. And I love that reminder again because we cannot separate the scripture from God's person and the Holy Spirit is an aspect of God's person. But so many Christians try to make it one or the other. You know, it's almost like we have a Bible versus the Holy Spirit type of rivalry in some denominations and some theological camps. However, you cannot separate the two because you will never understand the scripture without the help of the Holy Spirit and you will never understand a movement of the Holy Spirit without the help of the scripture. 
That's also why Jesus told us that it is the Spirit that will lead us into all truth. So whenever the Holy Spirit is enlightening the truth of the Scripture to us, that is when it becomes powerful to us. That is when the the Scripture comes truly alive to us. And we love that part. We can get excited about that part. We love the idea of it being alive and being powerful and moving in and through our lives. However, we don't like so much the idea of it piercing us. we can we leave that. But like my friend David Colbert over at iChurch, he reminded me this week, he said, we don't read the scripture simply for information. We read it for transformation. And a lot of times when we need to be transformed, it's not going to be an easy, simple, painless process. Sometimes the word of God needs to pierce us. Sometimes we need things that are going to be cut out of our lives. But he does so out of his love. He does so out of his grace. That's why Romans tells us it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And the writer of Hebrews says that this word pierces us to the deepest depths of our being. And it discerns, or more accurately, it assesses the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Because if we're really brutally honest with ourselves, we know how broken our hearts are. That's why following your heart is the absolutely worst advice you could ever give or ever get. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Why would I want to follow something that's deceitful and desperately wicked? Because Disney told me to, right? That's why I want to follow my heart. It makes no sense. No, whenever we are confronted with the actual truth, the ugliness of our sin becomes ever more apparent to us, and we realize that none of it is hidden from God. That's why it says in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, we can lie to ourselves. We can talk ourselves into just about anything. We can deceive all the people around us and put on a facade and control what they see. But we cannot fool God. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's the creator. He's the designer. And no matter what facades we put up or what kind of walls we put up in our lives, the word of God is sharp enough to cut through all of it like butter, revealing to us who we really are, but more importantly, to show us who Jesus really is. Because what way too many Christians fail to realize is the primary purpose for the acknowledgement of our sin in our lives is not to make you feel all bad or try to give you a kick in the pants and motivate you to be better because it doesn't work that way. Like we said last week, the, uh, Christianity is not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. No, the piercing effect of the word of God is not meant to strip us of our hope. It's meant to point us to our hope. You know, naked and opened or naked and exposed, that phrase is literally translated stripped and stunned. And I read one account that, that suggested that the, the writer, he's using this language in the context of the word being sharper than a two-edged sword because he's actually giving a word picture of a gladiator competing in the Roman Colosseum. And this language is comparing to the one that has fought as hard as they possibly could, gave everything they possibly had, but inevitably still lost the fight. And that gladiator is now laying at the feet of his opponent, stripped and stunned disabled and disarmed, beaten and broken. And all that's left is the hope of mercy. 
And if you're familiar with Roman history or if you've seen the movie Gladiator, when someone was in this position, the fight all but over, the victor would stand over his opponent and he would look over to Caesar or he would look over to the highest ranking official that was there overseeing the game, sitting in the judgment seat. That official would stand up, he'd put his thumb out, and he would either give a thumbs up, signaling to show mercy, or he would give a thumbs down, signaling to administer the final blow. And you know, too often we we Christians, we hear a message like this, we hear a truth like this presented, and that's right where we stop. Right? As if to say, you need to realize that you are nothing but stripped and stunned, disabled and disarmed, beaten and broken before a holy, almighty God. So you better work really hard to pick yourself up and to be better or God's going to give you that thumbs down. And in doing so, we present a very fear-based faith. We do the writer of Hebrews a vast disservice and we miss out on the rest that God is actually providing through this truth. Because the truth is we are nothing but stripped and disarmed and broken before a holy, perfect God. But the writer goes on to tell us that that we lay at the feet of a high priest who sympathizes with us. He knows exactly what it's like to be in that position because he allowed himself to be stripped and stunned by Roman guards. And even though he was all-powerful God in flesh, he allowed himself to be disabled and disarmed. He allowed himself to be beaten and broken, and he took the final blow for you and me on the cross. Therefore, we realize there's nothing we could ever do to win the fight. We can't win the fight over temptation. We can't win the fight over pain. We can't win the fight over sin. We can't win the fight over the troubles of this world. But he took our failures upon himself so that we could experience victory without doing anything to earn it. Because whenever I was in that arena, trying so hard to fight sin and fight temptation and fight the troubles of this world, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I fought, I just kept getting beat over and over and over again. My sin, my regrets, the very enemies of hell would beat me down and stand over me, mocking me, just waiting for the permission to administer the final blow. And the judgment was death. There's always going to be death. The wages of sin is death. But before that judgment could be carried out on me, the very son of the one who was sitting in that judgment seat got up from the right hand of the king and he stepped into the arena and all of heaven and earth watched in utter confusion as he picked me up and took my place. And he didn't just let me go. No, he he told me to go sit with the royal family. Because he said, that was my place now. That was where I now belonged. And all I could do was just stand there and watch as he took the blow that I deserved, the blow that I earned through all of my failure. But he took it from me so I could go before the throne with all of the rights of a child of the king. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, my boldness does not come from any confidence and security in what I can do and who I am. No, it comes from knowing what Jesus went through to give me this opportunity so I can confidently take advantage of it. Now, I never go before the throne of grace with entitlement. No, I go before the throne 
in order to show honor to the one who saved me and allowed me to be here. You see, despite how broken and sinful we are, the Father accepts us because of what Jesus did for us. And we can go before the throne with boldness or also translated with cheerful courage, full of gratitude for what Jesus did on my behalf. And God is pleased to show you grace because he's pleased in the work of Jesus. He is pleased to show you mercy because he is pleased with what Jesus did for you. You are pleasing in God's sight because you have been washed by the blood of Jesus and your life has been hidden in Christ. So we owe him everything. So he can cut anything he wants to cut out of my life. He can move in whatever way he wants to move in my life because I owe it all to him anyway. And these are the conclusions we come to whenever we have a consistent relationship with the word of God, allowing the Holy Spirit to let the entire narrative of scripture to speak to us. So let's consistently pray that the word of God comes alive to us. On Monday morning or any time throughout your day tomorrow, when you open up your word of God, just stop for a moment and pray. It's like, God, Holy Spirit, make this word come alive to me. I ask that it'll move powerfully in my life. And yes, we definitely need to be intentionally asking the Holy Spirit to pierce us through the word. Search me and know me, God. See if there's any offensive way within me. Asking for him to create in me a clean heart out of a sense of duty and legalism, no. Out of a sense of relationship. You see, in uh, verse 13, uh, the King James Version, I think, is actually the only version that, that uh, actually translates it most correctly. Because at the end of that one, it says, nothing is, is, is hidden from his sight. Everything is naked and open to whom, um, in front of whom, to whom we have to do. That's the way King James says it. Because that word to do, or translate as we read today, to give account, is actually the same word. So it's used logos right there. But in that context, it actually means that we are exposed to him with whom we have relation. And so often we look at it as he's just sitting there as a judge. And we have to be all calm. And it's like we, we, we have to walk on eggshells around God because we have this, this view of God being up on this judgment seat and he's got his arm crossed just looking at us. And he's saying, are you kidding me? Matt, I heard you cuss under your breath when Miriam wasn't looking. I can't believe you would say that. All my years of eternity, I've never seen such unrighteousness in my life. And we think we throw God off with our actions. When in the reality, you know, Jesus is seated at the right hand, right? He's seated in God. That means his work's completed. So whenever we sin, whenever we mess up, you know how Jesus looks? Yeah, I saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's throwing you off. You're, you're beating yourself up. That's good. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life but I died for that already. I've taken care of that already. If I love you, if I, if I see you as holy and righteous and redeemed, not because of what you can do in all of your actions, but because of the blood I poured out for you, why are you going to hold on to that? All these areas of sin and shortcomings in our lives, we try to hold on to as if we can fix it ourselves. We can't fix it ourselves. There's nothing I can do to be better on my own power. I just give it over to him. 
Accept the gift of salvation. Let my mind be wrapped around the lengths he went to, literally going from heaven and earth, taking the blow for me so I can go free in this forgiveness. And I'm not going to take it for granted just by living however way I want to live. No, I want to live a moral, godly life because I love him so much for what he did for me. That we give account to him because we have relation with him. Because I'm no longer just a sinner walking aimlessly around this earth. I'm not just a sinner saved by grace. I am a child of the king. So that's where I want to set the bar for my life. And there are some of you in this room that you just didn't realize. You feel like you just had to think about yourself, that you were so bad all the time. Every time you mess up, it's like you have to beat yourself over the head, that God's so mad at you, and you just set the bar so low for your life when God wants you to set the bar up here. You are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your shortcomings. You're not defined by any level of earthly success in this world. You are defined by the completed work of Jesus. God calls you his child. So let that be the standard of your life and let everything you do flow from that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you are. Thank you for being such a good father. Thank you that we get all of eternity just to sing and echo how holy and good you are. Father, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would run rampant on all of our hearts and all of our minds in the name of Jesus right now, and we would become overcome with gratitude, and we would be overcome with revelation of the lengths you went to. Let us know exactly what you went through. Let us understand for a moment the deep magnitude of the cross and what you went through for us. And let our hearts just be broken with gratitude for what you did. And I pray we would stand and not take for granted the work that you did on the cross. But we would pour out our lives to you. We would let you pierce and cut away whatever you need to cut away in our lives. We would allow you to move in whatever way you want to move in our lives. Understanding that your ways are better than our ways. You know what's best for us. You are the creator. You are the manufacturer. You're the designer. So you are where we want to go to for instruction. And I pray from this day moving forward that every single person under the sound of my voice, including myself, that we would have a new relationship with the scriptures. I pray that you would stir our hearts and have a desire to get into your word. We'd be excited about getting into your word. And I pray your Holy Spirit would make it come alive to us in a brand new way than we've ever experienced before in our lives. Whether we've been reading it for five hours or 50 years, this word is alive. It will never return void. And you have something more you want us to teach us because you want to connect with us personally right now. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who we get to be in you. Inhabit our praise as we close our service today. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. And all God's people said, and would you stand to your feet and worship with us one more time? Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share what you heard this week, make sure and tag at hope underscore HKY on Instagram or Hope Hickory on Facebook. If you want to partner with our ministry, you can give online at hopehickory.org.